If you would, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. I believe it's fitting today that we land on Christ, the doctrine of Christ. We believe in Jesus. Um, I don't know if you've ever considered this, but our faith, our Christianity, our church rests on someone who died for us in more than one ways. Ultimately, obviously, we do not exist as Christian people without um, Christ and his redemption in our lives, but also as a country, as a nation, as a people, as a, as a church gathering in a building like this, uh, we exist and we are here because others have given their lives for religious freedom around the world on our behalf. So as we consider this Memorial Day, uh, we are thankful uh, for those who have come before Uh, Those who have served in our military, we are incredibly thankful for them and those who have given their lives. But ultimately, we go a step past them uh, because we are thankful for them, but we do not worship them. We go a step past them to Christ, and we go, that is where we are going to fix our hearts and our minds this morning on Christ, on the fact that we believe in him. One of the most fascinating, I believe, and troubling passages in Scripture comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. It has to do with the nature of his presence on this earth. And this is not John 1, so just listen as I read it uh, to you this morning. Uh, Prepare yourself, buckle in. comes from Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says these words. Again, one of the most fascinating and troubling passages in all of Scripture. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me, this is Jesus speaking, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. For whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And church, those are some hard and troubling and yet fascinating words. You hear Jesus say things like, I have not come to bring peace to the earth, but I have come to bring division. That is not the picture of Jesus that we get very often, is it? Jesus is is authored and, and talked about as one who is a God of peace, a God of love, a Savior of peace, a Savior of love. But here he is in his own words saying, I have not come to bring peace, but I have come to bring Division. I've come to set a man against his father. And whoever loves father or mother or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That does not sound like the Jesus that is so often proclaimed, does it? When people speak of Jesus, I'm afraid it's all too often in terms of their view of Christ rather than Christ's view of himself. 
Their view that says, no, don't judge me. That's Christians and unbelievers alike. That's the favorite verse in Scripture for most these days. Don't judge me. You can't judge. Not just have some good morals, etc., etc. Church, Jesus' view of himself, yes, is, a, is one of love and grace, but it is also one of deep division. What Jesus is essentially saying here is this. If you believe in me, if you believe in me, if you are one of mine, that is going to cause a certain type of life to spring forth out of you. And that type of life is going to set you at odds. It's going to set you apart from literally everyone around you who does not know Christ. So catch what happens. When you believe in Christ, your natural worldly life changes drastically. That is what this passage is all about in Matthew chapter 10. You get brand new affections. They alter your perception of everything else. Your life in the here and now changes when you believe in Christ. So let me ask you this morning, how does believing in Christ influence the way you live for Christ? How does believing in Christ influence the way you engage with His church? How does believing in Christ influence the way you speak to other people? How does the way you believe in Christ influence the way you speak about other people? How does believing in Christ influence the way you live in the world around you? See, these things are not disconnected. We don't believe in Christ over here in this aspect of our life, but in this aspect of our life where we actually live, we leave the belief over there. They have to merge together. If they don't merge together, you don't believe. I read somewhere this weekend and said, show me a faith, and he's just quoting James, show me a faith apart from works, and it is a dead faith. It doesn't exist. So if your belief, your belief you claim to have in Christ does not line up with the way you live for Christ, then there is a deep disconnect that could, I'm not saying it is, but it could be a marker of a lost person who may think that they're as saved as can be. Our beliefs and our behaviors naturally run together. If one or the other is off, it will be reflected in the other. So church, when we say we believe in Christ, it's no trivial matter. It's no small thing to say that you believe in the Holy One of Israel, that you believe in the distinct Son of God. It's no small thing to say because of the implications that it has. When you say you believe, it puts a, 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 the, the emphasis on your life that it's going to resemble and reflect that belief. Church, these are the realities that we must come to terms with. Jesus makes it very clear throughout his teaching that belief in him or acknowledging him demands a different way of life on our part from the natural world. Let me put it as simply as I can. If you believe in Christ, every aspect of your life is changed. All of it. You don't get a pass. You don't get timeouts. Every aspect of your life falls under the lordship of Jesus Christ when you say, I believe. So for us to say we believe, it is no simple matter. Now, 
The reality for today as we come to look at what we believe, actually believe about Christ, like last week as we studied the idea of God and the Trinity, we can never explore the full depth of the reality of Christ. In 30 minutes, 30 days, 30 years, a lifetime, you're not going to get it. As the saying goes, Christ is deeper still. And praise God for it. But this morning, instead of bouncing all over this place in Scripture like we did last week, we're going to camp out in one particular passage this morning, and that's John chapter 1. And what I want to do is camp out in this passage and see what the Scriptures, what John, his gospel, will teach us about who we believe Christ to be and how that affects the way we think and how we live. So we're going to say, what do we believe about Christ and how does that influence us and impact us today? Because we've already established that when Jesus says you believe, if you say you believe, that there is a necessary life change that accompanies that. So, if we believe, what happens to us? John chapter 1. Let's read a portion of this together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we'll stop right there for the moment. Now let's back up and let's begin to work through this passage and see what it teaches us about who Christ is, who we believe him to be. Number one, we believe that Christ is God, yet a distinct person. This is kind of a recap from last week. Recapping the Trinity, we believe that Christ is God on the whole, yet he is a distinct person. Look at what it says. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, there's a key distinction here in verse 1 that you need to be aware of. There are many uh, religions, one in particular, that tries to change the language of verse 1 right here. And it makes the language say something like this. It says, in the beginning was the Word, word the Word was with God, and then it says this, the Word was a God. One little letter changes everything. The Word was not a God. The Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. This is talking about Jesus. How do we know? Verse 2 tells us. It, it says the Word that we were talking about is a He, is a person. And John's going to go ahead and clarify that as he goes through the rest of the text. But right here in the beginning, I'm just giving you what's to come right here. He, when he says He, he's talking about Christ. In the beginning was Christ, known as the Word. And Christ was with God. And Christ was God. 
Christ was in the beginning with God. He was God himself, yet he was a distinct person. So what does this mean? He was pre-existent. He was there in the beginning. He wasn't formed. He wasn't born. He, wasn't, he didn't come about. He, he, God didn't create him. He was there. He was in the beginning. He was pre-existent, which means he is also eternal. Like God, he bears the characteristics and the qualities of God. Pre-existence, eternality, he is forever. He possesses every quality and character that God the Father does. And yet, at the same time, he is completely distinct as the Son. With his own work to do, with his own calling to do, with his own task to fulfill. So, what does that mean for us? What are the implications of us believing? Most of the people in this room will say, yes, we believe that Christ is God. He is distinct. But how does that impact our life today? What does that do to us and for us? One, it means he is exactly who he says he is. There are many who would want to question today. Who Jesus really is. Is he simply a good teacher? Church, that is not an option that Jesus leaves us. There's many apologists have, who have come up with this, um, have tweaked and, and messed with this, uh, this idea that Jesus is either, he's either the Lord, he is who he says he is, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic. There was another L, but I can't remember what it was now. They, they've given these, these, these categories that if he if, he, if he's not exactly who he says he is, if he is not the distinct son of God, then he is either nuts or he's the biggest liar this world has ever seen or known. Church, there's a reason he creates so much division in the world today. If he was a liar or if he was just crazy, this passing way, this fad of Christianity would have died off long ago. I believe with all my heart the only reason that the church of God still exists is because Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He is the God. He is the distinct son of God. What else does this mean for us? It means that God has intervened in history. That God has stepped into time. God has stepped into history. He has intervened in the history of mankind in a very unique way. He himself, he has injected himself into the fabric of our lives. He has put himself, not just anybody, not just anybody has come. He didn't just send an angel to declare the message on high. He didn't just write his name across the skies. He injected himself into the fabric of our everyday lives. And church, as we, as little Christ, as incarnate believers, you know what that means for us? It means that we inject ourselves into the fabric of this world. Not to become like the world, but that the world may be saved through him. It means that what Jesus, what does it mean that we believe that Christ is God and he's yet he's the distinct son? It means that what he said and did changes everything. If Jesus was just a man, then his teaching bears no, no value other than maybe some good morality. If Jesus was just a man, his sacrifice on the cross meant nothing. 
If he was simply a man that God liked and God said, you know what, this one can kind of start and help me out here on earth. If that's all that Jesus was, then you are lost in your sin. The very, your very acceptance before God the Father is hinges on our belief that he is the distinct Son and God himself. What it also means is that ignoring him is not an option. If God himself, the Father, sat on his holy throne in front of you, ignoring him would not be an option, would it? If it was God seated on this platform, on his throne, ignoring him would not be an option, would it? So why is ignoring Jesus a very valid option for many of us today? Ignoring his teaching to love our enemies. Ignoring his teaching to be patient with all. Ignoring his teaching to not be angry because that's murder. Ignoring his teaching to be sexually pure. If he is the son of God, what he did and everything he said matters incredibly. And ignoring him is not an option. That means the call to make disciples. That means the call to proclaim the word of God. That means the call call to know him is not an option for you. It's not something for when you get around to it. It's something for each and every moment of your life. And God the Father says, through my son, this is what you must do if you believe in me. Ignoring him is not an option We believe that Christ is God, yet he is a distinct person. Number two, we believe that Christ is a creating agent. Look at verse three. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What's he saying there? He's saying that Jesus made everything. He was the creating agent in creation. This is not a one-time statement about the position of Christ in all of creation. Colossians 1, 16, we read it earlier. Good job, Aaron. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and what? For him. That's not the only one. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Do you catch that? Through Jesus is everything. Through whom, through Jesus, you exist. Just stop and ponder the ramifications of that and that will keep you up the rest of the day and night. Without Jesus, you don't exist. Your very existence is tied into Christ. And that's not even talking about just as him as, as, as our Savior and as us as Christians. Your existence as a person depends on Christ. Hebrews 1-2, In the last days he has also spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now a natural question out of this is, why does it matter that in Christ That God in Christ created the world. One, it means that you're a steward of this world and not an owner. Yes, we talk about dominion, but dominion does not mean owner. Dominion means steward. Ultimately, he is still the owner of all things, including this earth. That means very clearly, church, it's not ours to destroy. 
There are concerns that we should have for our environment. I'm not saying we run out as far as some do. But I'm saying this world is not ours to destroy. God has given us dominion, not ownership. We may steward it, we may enjoy it, not to conquer it. Dominion does not mean conquer. Second thing it tells us is creation is important and it is also longing for redemption. Listen to this, Romans chapter 8. Listen to this. For creation, the creation, not just us, the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What a passage this is. We are not, Romans 8, 19 to 23. We are not the only ones waiting on the return of Christ. You're not the only one waiting on it. Creation itself is set in the throes of bondage to sin and awaiting redemption at his return. Creation was affected at the fall as well. Creation was affected. The idea of a new heaven and a new earth is not just for you. It's the entire creation to be restored to its pre-sin state. You think aspects of this earth are beautiful now. What do you think it will look like then? This is but a shadow of the wonder that will come with a new heaven and a new earth. You think the sun is magnificent. Wait until the sun is the glory of God. You think the mountains look good or the Grand Canyon looks good. That's just erosion. Wait till God puts his handiwork on display in perfect creation for all to see. For creation is, renew- is made through Christ. And church, what a handiwork of God that the act of Christ on the cross was. I can only imagine what he has in store for a new heaven and a new earth. Creation matters. The creator, and why does it matter? It matters because the creator gives value to the creation. All things were created through Christ. So when we say we believe in Christ as the creating agent, that gives value to the creation. This world does not ultimately belong to you. It belongs to the creator. Your role in this world is to steward, not owner. We believe that Christ is a creating agent. Number three, we believe that Christ alone is life-giving and can defeat the darkness of sin and death. Let me read that again. We believe that Christ alone is life-giving and can defeat the darkness of sin and death. Look at verse four. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let me read that again. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has 
not overcome it. Jesus held within himself the very power of life. Just stop and consider those first phrases of verse 4. In him was life. That is so good. In him was life. Church, this is what everyone is looking for. Everyone is looking for the perfect life, the good life, the fulfilling life, the purpose-driven life, the successful life, the life above their own. Yet John tells us here that true life is present at only one fountain. In him was life. And that life was not just for himself. It wasn't just for you. Who was it for? It was the light of men, of all men, of mankind. In Christ is life for everyone. And then John introduces us for the first of what would be many references if you read through this book to the idea of light and darkness in his gospel. It helps us picture the impact that Jesus has had in this world. He says the life of Christ, that life that he bear, bore within himself. Remember when he stood up and said, out of me flows rivers of living water. If you drink of this, you will never thirst again. Remember that? In, okay, now couple that with this passage. In him was life. And begin to, you begin to get the picture of what Jesus does in this world, in this life. He says the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Consider something for a second, church. Can darkness ever defeat light? Now, I'm not asking you to go off into some science explanation about a black hole swallowing up something, a star or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I want you to think very practically here with me, okay, this morning. Can darkness ever defeat light? No, it can't, can it? If a light is on, darkness cannot turn it off. It can wrap all the way around it. It can wrap around it. If we were to turn off and black out every window in this place, and I lit one match, would it... Would it magnify the whole room? Would it light up the whole room? No, it wouldn't, would it? But could the darkness put that match out? Does the darkness catch us? Does the darkness have any intrinsic power to put out that light? It doesn't, does it? But what happens when you turn on the lights? The darkness flees, does it not? The darkness recesses to under the balcony. That was a joke. (laughs) The darkness recesses back to the corners, doesn't it, when we turn on the light? Church, do you catch the picture of what's going on here? Jesus Christ was the light of all men. We are the light of the world, the scriptures tell us. So what does that mean? No matter what goes on in this world around us, no matter what the world throws at you, with the light of Christ in your life, the darkness must flee. The darkness must push back to the recesses of your life. The darkness must flee to the corners. And if you put enough light into a room, the darkness is absent. Absent. 
Do you catch the implications of this? You put enough light into a place, and the darkness must flee. But what happens? It is always waiting, isn't it? Scripture tells us that the devil is seeking. He's wandering around. Why? Because in pockets of this world there is light. And he would love for those people, those Christians, to turn that light out to cover it up. The little song that we teach our children has more power and more truth than you would think. And we're going to hide our light under a bushel? No. Church, the devil is waiting for you to put a cap on your light. The devil is waiting for you to hang blackout curtains so that he may come back. The devil is waiting for a church to draw the shades down so that people cannot see the light of the gospel. But the scriptures tell us that in him was light and the darkness has not and will not and cannot overcome it. Light penetrates darkness, not the other way around. The life that Jesus carries and offers to his people can never be defeated by the darkness. In fact, it pierces, it penetrates, and ultimately it defeats darkness. What does it mean? Christ alone is life-giving and can defeat the darkness of sin and death. It means that true life can be found nowhere else. No matter how content someone may be with the pleasures of this world, true life and contentment can only be found in the life-giving, creating agent of Christ. This is why it is so hard sometimes for the well-off to come to Christ. Because they have found contentment in everything else that this world has to offer, and they think they are satisfied. Church, when people are clamoring and looking for life, that's when the gospel is ready and available to them. True life can be found nowhere else, but it also means, it also means that because Jesus is this, because we believe that Jesus is a life-giving and defeats the darkness of sin and death, because we believe that, it means that sin and death hold no power over you. And you should not and you must not fear them. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? It is absent. Why? Because Christ has won. Christ is risen from the dead. We are one with him again. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. That's to you. Rise up from the grave. Walk in the light of Christ. He is life-giving. You do not have to dwell in darkness any longer. You do not have to dwell in your sin and in your shame any longer. Christ wipes your sin and your shame away. Whether you are a believer, whether you are unbeliever, Christ can and will cleanse you and wipe away every stain that has marked you. What does it mean for us to believe? Christ is life-giving and has defeated sin and darkness, it means that God-given life is only found when someone truly meets Christ. Nothing else will work. Nothing close will work. Only in Christ is redemption found. 
The life-giving nature and ability of Christ is singular, church. We can all carry the gospel. The call to proclaim the gospel is very plural. But the only one who gives life, the only one who creates new life is Christ. Which necessitates and feeds our next belief. Look at verse 6 to verse 8. Now it may seem as though the subject shifts here. But I want you to see is what John is really teaching us here is that we can believe that Christ is the only exclusive Messiah. That's number four. We believe that Christ is the only exclusive Messiah. Now it looks like John shifts the subject here and begins to talk about somebody else. He introduces John the Baptist here. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness that all might believe. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. It seems like the subject has shifted, right? No, wrong. What has happened here, I want you to see how John describes John. Listen to the descriptors he uses. He was sent from God. He came as a witness to bear witness. He was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. I think this passage, what he's doing is he's making it very clear as to who Jesus is. Remember, Jesus says that John the Baptist is the greatest man born of woman. Yet his entire purpose on this earth was what? To point to one. John the Baptist had no control over the direction of his life. The greatest man born to woman had no control over the direction of his life he had one purpose one calling and that was to point to one messiah who he indirectly called the christ in john 1:20 when he says he confessed and did not deny but confessed i am not the christ and then later in verse 27 is he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal i am not worthy to untie Church, the Jews have made the mistake that millions have made since and millions will continue to make without God creating life in them. They sought another to be Christ. They went to John. They went out to John in verse 19. The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now, whether the Jews were looking for the Christ, which no doubt they were, History tells us they were searching for the Christ. They may have thought John was. They may have just been doing a random heresy check. We don't know. It doesn't matter. What we know is they looked for Christ where he was not. They sought another to be Christ. They were looking in the wrong place. Why? Because church, no one can take the place of the one who has come. No one else is the light of all mankind. Of no one else can we say, in him was life. Others may carry the message of his life, but they will never be life. Now what does that mean for you? What does it mean to have a Christ who is, to believe that we have a Christ who is the only exclusive Messiah? It means that no man can be your Savior. No man can be your savior. No pastor can be your savior. No grandpa, no grandma, no self-proclaimed prophet, no TV preacher that's spouting heresy. None of them can be your savior. Only one. If any preacher declares himself to be prophet, if any preacher declares himself to be Messiah, 
you move away. If any preacher even deflects the attention from the one who is our Messiah, you move away. Why? Because we believe that there is only one. And his name is Jesus. It means salvation can be found nowhere else. It means that no one else is coming. It means that we have only one message of one Savior. Number five. We believe that his rejection purchased our salvation. Guys, this is the heart of the gospel. We believe that his rejection purchased our salvation. Verse 9 to 11 tells us that Jesus came into the world, the very world that he had made, and it did not recognize him, and in fact, it rejected him. Look at that, verse 9. True light was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet... The world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people. He's talking about the Jews. And they did not receive him. In fact, they not only did not receive him, they rejected him. And their rejection led to his murder. But in his murder, something extraordinary happened. In his murder, he was not, they were not taking his life. He was laying it down. In his murder, he was substituting himself for us. And church, his substitution changes everything. When the Jews saw the cross, they saw the end of a political movement that might get them in trouble with the Romans. When the Romans saw the cross, they saw another criminal disposed of. When Christians see the cross, they see themselves. When you see the cross, you see Christ substituting himself in your place so that you may be found righteous before God. We believe that his rejection, his murder, purchased our salvation. We see Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5 fills in the gaps for what us, for what happened on the cross. When we look at the cross as a mystery and we're not sure what's going on, church, what's going on is Jesus was substituting himself for you. If you're an unbeliever and you don't, you don't follow Christ in this place this morning, when you see the cross that we worship and we sing about, what I want you to know is that you are in sin. But in that moment, Christ was taking your punishment so that you may be reconciled or made right with God. If you would yet trust and believe in him he will give you eternal life he is the life-giving creating agent he in him was life what does it mean that your that his rejection purchased our salvation it means verses 12 and 13 it means that you have become a child of god it means that you cannot save yourself it means that others cannot save themselves it means that god saves sinners it means that people must receive his grace it means you have a message to proclaim it means we have an anthem and a banner that flies over our life it means we have a message to declare to those who don't know him it means we lift up our voices in praise to the holy one who has come it means John 1.14 is true and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, 
He has made him known. What does it mean to believe in Christ? Simply put, church, it means everything. Would you pray with me this morning? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Christ, has made Him known. Church, Jesus came to this earth to make God known to us. I pray that you know that this morning. I pray that you know the redemption and the salvation of Christ this morning. That you can say, I believe. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, there will be ministers down here in the front. When we stand and sing, they would love to visit with you about what it means to follow Christ. And we invite you to come. Maybe you just want to stand and worship the truth that you know a Savior, that you believe. God, we put ourselves in your hands this morning. We receive your grace that we may show your grace. In the name of Christ that we pray and come. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?